Section twenty nine of Volume One D of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of sixteen eighty eight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of sixteen eighty eight by David Hume. Volume One D section twenty nine chapter forty two part four she next turned to the nobleman who attended her and made a petition in behalf of her servants that they might be well treated be allowed to enjoy the presents which she had made them and be sent safely into their own country having received a favourable answer she preferred another request that they might be permitted to attend her at her death in order said she that their eyes may behold and their hearts bear witness how patiently their queen and mistress can submit to her execution and how constantly she perseveres in her attachment to her religion the earl of kent opposed this desire and told her that they would be apt by their speeches and cries to disturb both herself and the spectators he was also apprehensive lest they should practise some superstition not meet for him to suffer such as dipping their handkerchiefs in her blood for that was the instance which he made use of my lord said the queen of scots I will give my word, although it be but dead, that they shall not incur any blame in any of the actions which you have named. But alas, poor souls, it would be a great consolation for them to bid their mistress farewell, and I hope, added she, that your mistress, being a maiden queen, would vouchsafe in regard of womanhood that i should have some of my own people about me at my death i know that her majesty hath not given you any such strict command but that you might grant me a request of far greater courtesy even though i were a woman of inferior rank to that which i bear finding that the earl of kent persisted still in his refusal her mind which had fortified itself against the terrors of death was affected by this indignity for which she was not prepared i am cousin to your queen cried she and descended from the blood royal of henry the seventh and a married queen of france and an anointed queen of scotland the commissioners perceiving how invidious their obstinacy would appear conferred a little together and agreed that she might carry a few of her servants along with her she made a choice of four men and two maidservants for that purpose she then passed into another hall where was erected the scaffold covered in black and she saw with an undismayed countenance the executioners and all the preparations of death the room was crowded with spectators, and no one was so steeled against all sentiments of humanity as not to be moved when he reflected on her royal dignity, 
considered the surprising train of her misfortunes, beheld her mild but inflexible constancy, recalled her amiable accomplishments, or surveyed her beauties, which, though faded by years and yet more by her afflictions, still discovered themselves in this fatal moment. Here the warrant for her execution was read to her, and during this ceremony she was silent, but showed in her behaviour an indifference and unconcern, as if the business had nowise regarded her. Before the executioners performed their office, the Dean of Peterborough stepped forth, and though the Queen frequently told him that he needed not concern himself about her, that she was settled in the ancient Catholic and Roman religion, and that she meant to lay down her life in defence of that faith, he still thought it his duty to persist in his lectures and exhortations, and to endeavour her conversion. The terms which he employed were, under colour of pious instructions, cruel insults on her unfortunate situation, and besides their own absurdity may be regarded as the most mortifying indignities to which she had ever yet been exposed he told her that the queen of england had on this occasion shown a tender care of her and notwithstanding the punishment justly to be inflicted on her for her manifold trespasses was determined to use every expedient for saving her soul from that destruction with which it was so nearly threatened, that she was now standing upon the brink of eternity, and had no other means of escaping endless perdition than by repenting her former wickedness, by justifying the sentence pronounced against her, by acknowledging the Queen's favours, and by exerting a true and lively faith in christ jesus that the scriptures were the only rule of doctrine the merits of christ the only means of salvation and if she trusted in the inventions or devices of men she must expect in an instant to fall into utter darkness into a place where shall be weeping howling and gnashing of teeth that the hand of death was upon her the axe was laid to the root of the tree the throne of the great judge of heaven was erected the book of her life was spread wide and the particular sentence and judgment was ready to be pronounced upon her and that it was now during this important moment in her choice either to rise to the resurrection of life and hear that joyful salutation, Come, ye blessed of my father, or to share the resurrection of condemnation, replete with sorrow and anguish, and to suffer that dreadful denunciation, Go, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. During this discourse, Mary could not sometimes forbear betraying her impatience by interrupting the preacher, and the dean, finding that he had profited nothing by his lecture, at last bade her change her opinion, repent of her former wickedness, and settle her faith upon this ground. 
that only in Christ Jesus could she hope to be saved. She answered again and again with great earnestness, Trouble not yourself any more about the matter, for I was born in this religion, I have lived in this religion, and in this religion I am resolved to die. Even the two earls perceived that it was fruitless to harass her any further with theological disputes, and they ordered the dean to desist from his unseasonable exhortations, and to pray for her conversion. During the dean's prayer she employed herself in private devotion from the office of the Virgin, and after he had finished she pronounced aloud some petitions in English, for the afflicted church, for an end of her own troubles, for her son, and for Queen Elizabeth, and prayed God that the princess might long prosper, and be employed in his service. The Earl of Kent, observing that in her devotions she made frequent use of the crucifix, could not forbear reproving her for her attachment to that popish trumpery, as he termed it, and he exhorted her to have Christ in her heart, not in her hand. She replied with presence of mind that it was difficult to hold such an object in her hand without feeling her heart touched with some compunction. She now began, with the aid of her two women, to disrobe herself, and the executioner also lent his hand to assist them. She smiled and said that she was not accustomed to undress herself before so large a company, nor to be served by such valets. Her servants, seeing her in this condition, ready to lay her head upon the block, burst into tears and lamentations. She turned about to them, put her finger upon her lips, as a sign of imposing silence upon them, and having given them her blessing, desired them to pray for her. One of her maids, whom she had appointed for that purpose, covered her eyes with a handkerchief. She laid herself down without any sign of fear or trepidation, and her head was severed from her body at two strokes by the executioner. He instantly held it up to the spectators, streaming with blood, and agitated with the convulsions of death. The Dean of Peterborough alone exclaimed, So perish all Queen Elizabeth's enemies. The Earl of Kent alone replied, Amen. The attention of all the other spectators was fixed on the melancholy scene before them, and zeal and flattery alike gave place to present pity and admiration of the expiring princess. Thus perished, in the forty-fifth year of her age, and nineteenth of her captivity in England, Mary, Queen of Scots, a woman of great accomplishments both of body and mind, natural as well as acquired, but unfortunate in her life, and during one period very unhappy in her conduct. The beauties of her person and graces of her air combined to make her the most amiable of women, and the charms of her dress and conversation aided the impression which her lovely figure made on the hearts of all beholders. Ambitious and active in her temper, 
yet inclined to cheerfulness and society of a lofty spirit constant and even vehement in her purpose yet polite and gentle and affable in her demeanour she seemed to partake only so much of the male virtues as to render her estimable without relinquishing those soft graces which compose the proper ornament of her sex in order to form a just idea of her character we must set aside one part of her conduct while she abandoned herself to the guidance of a profligate man and must consider these faults whether we admit them to be imprudences or crimes as the result of an inexplicable though not uncommon inconstancy in the human mind of the frailty of our nature of the violence of passion and of the influence which situations and sometimes momentary incidents have on persons whose principles are not thoroughly confirmed by experience and reflection enraged by the ungrateful conduct of her husband seduced by the treacherous counsels of one in whom she reposed confidence transported by the violence of her own temper which never lay sufficiently under the guidance of discretion she was betrayed into actions which may with some difficulty be accounted for but which admit of no apology nor even of alleviation an enumeration of her qualities might carry the appearance of a panegyric an account of her conduct must in some parts wear the aspect of severe satire and invective her numerous misfortunes the solitude of her long and tedious captivity and the persecutions to which she had been exposed on account of her religion had wrought her up to a degree of bigotry during her later years and such were the prevalent spirit and principles of the age that it is the less wonder if her zeal her resentment and her interest uniting induced her to give consent to a design which conspirators actuated only by the first of these motives had formed against the life of elizabeth when the queen was informed of mary's execution she affected the most utmost surprise and indignation her countenance changed her speech faltered and failed her for a long time her sorrow was so deep that she could not express it but stood fixed like a statue in silence and mute astonishment after her grief was able to find vent it burst out in loud wailings and lamentations she put herself in deep mourning for this deplorable event and she was seen perpetually bathed in tears and surrounded only by her maids and women none of her ministers or counsellors dared to approach her or if any had such temerity she chased them from her with the most violent expressions of rage and resentment they had all of them been guilty of an unpardonable crime in putting to death her dear sister and kinswoman contrary to her fixed purpose of which they were sufficiently apprised and acquainted no sooner was her sorrow so much abated as to leave room for reflection 
than she wrote a letter of apology to the king of scots and sent it by sir robert carey son of lord hunsdon she there told him that she wished he knew but not felt the unutterable grief which she experienced on account of that lamentable accident which without her knowledge much less concurrence had happened in england that as her pen trembled when she attempted to write it she found herself obliged to commit the relation of it to the messenger her kinsman who would likewise inform his majesty of every circumstance attending this dismal and unlooked-for misfortune that she appealed to the supreme judge of heaven and earth for her innocence and was also so happy amidst her other afflictions as to find that many persons in her court could bear witness to her veracity in this protestation that she abhorred dissimulation deemed nothing more worthy of a prince than a sincere and open conduct and could never surely be esteemed so base and poor-spirited as that if she had really given orders for this fatal execution she could on any consideration be induced to deny them that though sensible of the justice of the sentence pronounced against the unhappy prisoner she determined from clemency never to carry it into execution and could not but resent the temerity of those who on this occasion had disappointed her intention and that as no one loved him more dearly than herself or bore a more anxious concern for his welfare she hoped that he would consider every one as his enemy who endeavoured on account of the present incident to excite any animosity between them in order the better to appease james she committed davison to prison and ordered him to be tried in the star chamber for his misdemeanour the secretary was confounded and being sensible of the danger which must attend his entering into a contest with the queen he expressed penitence for his error and submitted very patiently to be railed at by those very counsellors whose persuasion had induced him to incur the guilt and who had promised to countenance and protect him he was condemned to imprisonment during the queen's pleasure and to pay a fine of ten thousand pounds he remained a long time in custody and the fine though it reduced him to beggary was rigorously levied upon him all the favour which he could obtain from the queen was sending him some small supplies from time to time to keep him from perishing in necessity he privately wrote an apology to his friend walsingham which contains many curious particulars the french and scotch ambassadors he said had been remonstrating with the queen in mary's behalf and immediately after their departure she commanded him of her own accord to deliver her the warrant for the execution of the princess she signed it readily and ordered it to be sealed with the great seal of england she appeared in such good humour on the occasion that she said to him in a jocular manner go tell all this to walsingham who is now sick though i fear he will die of sorrow when he hears of it 
she added that though she had so long delayed the execution lest she should seem to be actuated by malice or cruelty she was all along sensible of the necessity of it in the same conversation she blamed drury and paulette that they had not before eased her of this trouble and she expressed her desire that walsingham would bring them to compliance in that particular she was so bent on this purpose that some time after she asked davison whether any letter had come from paulette with regard to the service expected of him davison showed her paulette's letter in which that gentleman positively refused to act anything inconsistent with the principles of honour and justice the queen fell into a passion and accused paulette as well as drury of perjury because having taken the oath of association in which they had bound themselves to avenge her wrongs they had yet refused to lend their hand on this occasion but others she said will be found less scrupulous davison adds that nothing but the consent and exhortations of the whole council could have engaged him to send off the warrant he was well aware of his danger and remembered that the queen after having ordered the execution of the duke of norfolk had endeavoured in a like manner to throw the whole blame and odium of that action upon lord burleigh elizabeth's dissimulation was so gross that it could deceive nobody who was not previously resolved to be blinded but as james's concern for his mother was certainly more sincere and cordial he discovered the highest resentment and refused to admit carey into his presence he recalled his ambassadors from england and seemed to breathe nothing but war and vengeance the states of scotland being assembled took part in his anger and professed that they were ready to spend their lives and fortunes in revenge of his mother's death and in defence of his title to the crown of england many of his nobility instigated him to take arms lord sinclair when the courtiers appeared in deep mourning presented himself to the king arrayed in complete armour and said that this was the proper mourning for the queen the catholics took the opportunity of exhorting james to make an alliance with the king of spain to lay immediate claim to the crown of england and to prevent the ruin which from his mother's example he might conclude would certainly if elizabeth's power prevailed overwhelm his person and his kingdom the queen was sensible of the danger attending these councils and after allowing james some decent interval to vent his grief and anger she employed her emissaries to pacify him and to set before him every motive of hope or fear which might induce him to live in amity with her walsingham wrote to lord thurlstone james's secretary a judicious letter to the same purpose he said that he was much surprised to hear of the violent resolutions taken in scotland and of the passions discovered by a prince of so much judgment and temper as james that a war founded merely on the principle of revenge 
and that too on account of an act of justice which necessity had extorted would for ever be exposed to censure and could not be excused by any principles of equity or reason but if these views were deemed less momentous among princes policy and interest ought certainly to be attended to and these motives did still more evidently oppose all thoughts of a rupture with elizabeth and all revival of exploded claims to the english throne that the inequality between the two kingdoms deprived james of any hopes of success if he trusted merely to the force of his own state and had no recourse to foreign powers for assistance that the objections attending the introduction of succours from a more potent monarch appeared so evident from all the transactions of history that they could not escape a person of the king's extensive knowledge but there were in the present case several peculiar circumstances which ought for ever to deter him from having recourse to so dangerous an expedient that the french monarch the ancient ally of scotland might willingly use the assistance of that kingdom against england but would be displeased to see the union of these two kingdoms in the person of james a union which would ever after exclude him from practising that policy formerly so useful to the french and so pernicious to the scottish nation that henry besides infested with faction and domestic war was not in a condition of supporting distant allies much less would he expose himself to any hazard or expense in order to aggrandize a near kinsman of the house of guise the most determined enemies of his repose and authority that the extensive power and exorbitant ambition of the spanish monarch rendered him a still more dangerous ally to scotland and as he evidently aspired to a universal monarchy in the west and had in particular advanced some claims to england as if he were descended from the house of lancaster he was at the same time the common enemy of all princes who wished to maintain their independence and the immediate rival and competitor of the king of scots that the queen by her own naval power and her alliance with the hollanders would probably intercept all succours which might be sent to james from abroad and be enabled to decide the controversy in this island with the superior forces of her own kingdom opposed to those of scotland that if the king revived his mother's pretensions to the crown of england he must also embrace her religion by which alone they could be justified and must therefore undergo the infamy of abandoning those principles in which he had been strictly educated and to which he had hitherto religiously adhered that as he would by such an apostasy totally alienate all the protestants in scotland and england and he could never gain the confidence of the catholics who would still entertain reasonable doubts of his sincerity that by advancing a present claim to the crown he forfeited the certain prospect of his succession and revived that national animosity which the late peace and alliance between the kingdoms had happily extinguished 
that the whole gentry and nobility of england had openly declared themselves for the execution of the queen of scots and if james showed such violent resentment against that act of justice they would be obliged for their own security to prevent forever so implacable a prince from ruling over them and that however some persons might represent his honour as engaged to seek vengeance for the present affront and injury the true honour of a prince consisted in wisdom and moderation and justice not in following the dictates of blind passion or in pursuing revenge at the expense of every motive and every interest end of section twenty nine chapter forty two part four